You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. A relatively short series, maybe eight or nine expositions uh, on Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. Or for those of you who are visitors tonight, it's a series of one sermon on Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. So let's turn there in our Bibles. If you're using the the church Bible uh, and can count to four, I think it's on page four this evening, and I want just to read these opening few verses of the Bible and of the book of beginnings, the book of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness and called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. It's always good, I think, when we begin a new series of expositions in any part of the Scriptures to try and ask ourselves, why would this part of Scripture be such an important part of Scripture to study. And of course, uh, there's a sense in which our first answer to that is always going to be the same. You remember how Paul puts it at the end of 2 Timothy chapter 3. He says, all Scripture has been breathed out by God, and it's profitable, it's useful in our lives for four things, for teaching us, for rebuking us, for correcting or perhaps better reshaping and transforming us and also for uh, equipping us, training us so that we may be well equipped as the servants of the Lord Jesus to be useful to him as his witnesses and his servants in the world. And that's obviously true of the book of Genesis. Actually, it's true for very significant reason, and that is, you scarcely need to think to realize this, everything else depends on what happens in these early chapters of Genesis. The whole Bible is a superstructure built upon this foundation. No early chapters of Genesis, no Bible. And so these chapters are of immense significance for us. The creation of God and all that's involved in it, even the singing from Psalm 8, indicates to us that when in later days the psalmists are thinking about who God is and what He has done, and what does it mean to be human? They reflect very clearly. Psalm 8 is a reflection, a meditation on Genesis 1, 26 and 27 and 28. And so the whole of the Old Testament is constantly looking back to the events of creation, 
and the creation of man and woman and the entrance of sin and the disaster that follows the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Uh, The first three chapters of Genesis are actually specifically quoted, I think, eight times in the pages of the New Testament. And there are about 50 different places in the New Testament where, although these chapters are not quoted, there is allusion or reference made to them. So, it's not just that you can't get the message of the Old Testament without these early chapters. It is that the message of the New Testament also looks back to these early chapters as it comes to explain to us the significance of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And there's another special reason why these chapters are important. These chapters are the lenses that are placed into the spectacles of every Christian believer as he or she looks at the world. Uh, When you get a new pair of spectacles, the optometrist will measure your uh, ability to see. He wants you to have 20-20 vision, and then he will send off his funny little numbers and diagrams to some company that grinds lenses to his prescription so that you can see clearly. And every Christian, particularly Christians in the 21st century, need deeply to have the lenses through which they see reality ground to the prescription of God's Word, so that we not only see how to get saved through the lenses of Scripture, but so that we see everything through the lenses of Scripture, so that, as we sometimes say, we can learn to think God's thoughts after Him because He has disclosed His thoughts to us in the pages of Scripture. So, although this is going to be a very short series on these chapters at the beginning of the Bible, we need to keep returning to them again and again and again and asking ourselves, are we seeing the world clearly with God's eyes? Because we need that, don't we? We live in a world where people do not see the world through God's eyes, but through man's eyes. And not only through man's eyes, but through rebellious man's eyes. And it's so wonderful for us as Christian believers to be able to turn to God's Word and to pray, Lord, open my eyes that I may see things the way you see them. And actually, perhaps of all the chapters in the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 1 is the chapter in which God Himself tells us, this is the way I see things. There's so many lessons to be learned here, aren't there? Lessons about the nature of creation. Lessons about why are we male and female, and does that really matter? Lessons later on about work, and why is that important, and why is it hard? lessons about why is it that the world seems so out of joint, 
and even people who never make a Christian profession will say things should not be the way they are. And if you just reflect on it, you realize instantaneously that people who deny there are any absolutes, people who deny there is any meaning to life, people who deny there is any creator still find themselves saying things are not what they were meant to be. And you want to whisper in their ear, how do you know they were meant to be anything different from the way they are? And these three chapters that we'll study together are chapters in which God prescribes for us lenses that enable us to function in the world, to understand the world, and not least to be faithful and indeed confident Christian witnesses in the world so that we can do what Peter says, we can be always ready to give an answer, a reason for the hope of the gospel that is in us. Indeed, uh, these chapters, the very first verse of these chapters means that the simplest Christian has an answer to what some of the greatest philosophers have said is the basic question in all the world. And it's this. For those of you who have any interest in these things, you find this very question asked in the philosopher Leibniz and in Heidegger. Here is the question. Why is it that there is something and not nothing? Why is it there is something and not nothing? And here the simplest Christian believer who opens his Bible finds right at the very beginning of his faith or her faith an answer to the question that some of the greatest minds in history have tried to answer in the fog of the confusion of their minds. And the answer is this, because in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That is to say, because in the beginning, God created everything that there is. It is not an inexplicable accident. It is the design of a good and wonderfully kind and infinitely wise and amazingly loving God. And not only is it true that in the beginning He made all things, but that He is so concerned for us, that He so loves us, that as it were in pages like this He wants to sit down beside us and say to us as though we were His friends, now let me tell you why I did it all. Let me explain to you what I've done. Let me tell you why I have made you. Let me explain to you what has gone wrong. And then let me tell you how it's possible to be brought back from where you now are in your confusion to know and love and trust and serve me and to find delight and joy in knowing me. So what about these chapters, and especially what about chapter 1? I think it would be fair to say this, that Genesis chapter 1 describes 
the world the scientist explores. It describes the world the scientist explores. But its main concern is to explain to us why it's there to explore in the first place. That is to say, it's fairly obvious, isn't it, that Genesis chapter 1 is not what we would call in the 21st century a scientific treatise, just as well. Because if there are a hundred of us in this room, if it were a serious scientific treatise, tiny minority of us would be able to understand it. In fact, the truth would be none of us would be able to understand it. How do I know that? Because the scientists are still trying to find mathematical formula and equations that will explain the way things are. And so instead of standing back from Genesis and saying, oh, you know, as foolish, stupid people do in the 21st century, oh, it's not scientific. You know, sometimes you want to take them by the lapels and say, who on earth do you think you are that would be able to understand the scientific formula that God used in the creation of the universe? Who do you think you are? When the greatest scientists of all the centuries still admit we know almost nothing about the cosmos. And so there's something wonderful, not something stumbling, something wonderful about the fact that what God has done is in the book of Genesis explain to us that there is a beginning, that he is the author of that beginning, and to tell us why it is that he has made everything that there is. You know, we always need to be cautious about people saying, science has said this, and science has shown us this. I say that because science is not reality. Science is a human way of describing reality. I have a dear friend, he was a colleague uh, when I taught at Westminster Seminary. He still teaches there. Brilliant New Testament theologian whose first doctorate was in mathematics at Harvard University, then went on to teach, I think, at Caltech, then did another doctorate in theology in South Africa, and uh, has a great interest in the interplay between science and the Christian faith. And at the end of one of his sabbatical leaves, he was reporting to the faculty about uh, what he had been studying. And he had a series of PowerPoint presentations. And I still remember the explosion of laughter that went through the men in the faculty as he put up a, a huge mathematical equation. I almost called him to ask if I could borrow it for tonight. This mathematical equation he said, that is the mathematical equation that describes the Milky Way. And to me, it was, it was to all of us. I mean, this is a room full of doctorates. To all of us, it was completely incomprehensible. It was unmemorizable. It was so long. And there's this kind of explosion of laughter in the room because we know there's only one man in the room has any idea what this equation is all about. That's the equation the mathematical equation describing the Milky Way, he said. And then immediately another PowerPoint presentation goes on. And it's a picture of the Milky Way through the Hubble telescope in all its grandeur and majesty and magnificence. And then he said, but that actually is 
the Milky Way. So you see, if a mathematician were looking at that uh, formula, that equation that describes the phenomenon of the Milky Way and pointed to it and said, you know, that's the Milky Way, you should start laughing. You should say to him, no, you need a Hubble telescope to be able to say, that's the Milky Way. And that's one of the supreme reasons God does not come to us as an astrophysical mathematician giving us equations, but comes to us as a God who has thrown the Milky Way into existence that fills us with awe and wonder at the sheer majesty and beauty of everything that He has done. You need to be a very special kind of human being before you are in awe of a mathematical equation. But it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter how brilliant or how basically unintelligent you might be. You see God's creation, and you are filled with joy and wonder. And your instinct is to say, I have got to praise somebody for this. I've got to be in one. I've got to try and find a way of expressing the awe I sense before this. And the marvelous thing about being a Christian believer is this. You know there is somebody there to whom you express your awe and your wonder and your worship. That's what's happening in the eighth psalm that we were singing a few minutes ago. So this is what Genesis 1 is doing for us. It's telling us about the God who has shown the marvels of his power in the created order. And in these opening verses, I want to underscore two things, two very fundamental lessons. The first is this, that God the creator is the foundation of everything that there is. God the Creator is the foundation of everything that there is. That's what's spelt out in the very first verse, isn't it? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the heavens and the earth are almost certainly a little expression that means everything. When we say day and night, we mean the whole 24 hours, don't we? And when Scripture says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, we should have little hyphens in there, the heavens hyphen and hyphen, the earth. It's the sense that there is, there is nothing that is that was not created by God. Remember how uh, John chapter 1 puts it, without him there was nothing made that was made. And this is a very interesting thing for us to reflect on, that this is how the Bible begins. It's not actually how some books about God begin, is it? Some books about God begin by taking you through logical arguments, the conclusion to which is the existence of God. Now, why does the Bible not do that? 
Is it because the authors, Moses, who wrote Genesis, didn't think in a logical way? No, it's for a very, very different reason. It's because they didn't think of God as the end product of a logical argument. They understood that the existence of God is actually the foundation for any logical argument. You you ever realize that? The existence of God is not the end product of a logical argument. The existence of God is what makes logical argument possible. It's the existence of God that tells us this is a reasonable and a rational world. And without that, all you have is accident or what people call chance. And this is the reason why the Scriptures begin with the existence of God. They don't argue for it. They know that everyone who ever reads these words or hears these words knows that God is. Remember how Paul speaks about that in Romans chapter 1. He says, you know, people are not sitting in armchairs scratching their heads and saying, I wonder if there's an argument for the existence of God. What people are actually doing because they know God is, is finding ways of suppressing and repressing the knowledge that they have. You know how people speak about repression? How you deny and press down things that you know are true? The Bible teaches us that since we've been born into a created order, since we've been made as the image of God, there actually is no place we can go where we can consistently suppress and repress the knowledge that we have that there is a God who has created all things, including ourselves, and it is with Him that we have to do. You and I as Christians need to know that when we meet non-Christians. We need to know this. Otherwise, we may be intimidated by them. Non-Christians, atheists included, are always denying to us and to themselves something that they know is actually true. I said something to that effect this morning. Why is it that atheists are so angry with God? Why do they get so worked up? Why they're so angry with you for believing in the existence of God? When they, you don't get angry about someone you believe has no existence unless you're a little, you know, round the bend. Isn't that true? It's one of the clearest possible evidences. And this is a great strength in our witness, isn't it? You may get angry about my faith in the Lord, but I know I know something about you that you are actually denying about yourself, that you live before Him and you cannot deny Him. I think one of the most striking examples of that I ever came across was in an article, a report in the Daily Telegraph magazine. So this is not the gutter press, this is the Daily Telegraph. It was a report on the memorial service that had been held for very famous English novelist, knighted by the Queen for services to literature, Sir Kingsley Amos. 
Some of you may have read his books. I have son Martin Amos, hugely famous, one of the most famous novelists of the 1950s and 1960s, and an atheist. And during the memorial service, the report said his son brought the house down in gales of laughter telling the story about the day Sir Kingsley Amos, the atheist, in the days of the Cold War with Russia, met the Russian playwright and author Yevgeny Yevtushenko. And Yevgeny Yevtushenko, who assumed, as most Russians did in those days, everybody in the West is a Christian, found out Kingsley Amos was an atheist. And he said to Sir Kingsley Amos, is it true, Sir Kingsley, what I hear about you, that you're not a Christian, you're an atheist? Now, here are the words that brought the house down with laughter, because they at least saw through the inherent contradiction. Kingsley Amos said, yes, it's true, I'm an atheist, but it's more than that. You see, I hate him. And he gave the whole game away, didn't he? I hate the one in whom I don't believe. That's why it's so marvelous that the Bible doesn't begin with cosmological arguments, ontological arguments, moral arguments for the existence of God. Because the Bible begins in this knowledge that since we are created by Him, we can never escape Him. All we can ever do, as Paul says in Romans 1.18 following, is suppress the knowledge that we have of Him. And of course, the result of that is that it's not actually possible for a non-Christian to live consistently with his or her atheism. And if you're witnessing to people who say they are atheists, always look for the point at which they are inconsistent with their basic presupposition. They will argue about things that are reasonable, but on what basis? They will give expression to all kinds of little ways in which they cannot live consistently with the atheism they profess. They've got to borrow from the truth of the Word of God in order to live in this world for the simple reason that it is God's world. And here's something that will stabilize you as a Christian witness, especially in the midst of the hostility. God has given you something that will just enable you to have poise and peace because you know all this hostility, it's actually rooted in a rejection and an attempt to repress the knowledge this person has that they have been made by God and that they will stand before God. No wonder they are angry. No wonder they seek to fill their lives with God's substitutes. Why? Well, it's because we were made by God. We were made for God. This is God's world. And uh, there is no last exit in which we can escape from Him. And so as Christians, we always begin 
with God. We think of our lives as created by God and then centered on God because we know that He is the creator of everything that is and that He is our loving master. So the first point is this, that God the creator is the foundation of everything that is. And the second point that we need to notice is that God the creator has made himself known in everything he has made. That's what this first chapter is really all about. It's about the way in which God's creation teaches us something about God himself. One of the things that's actually fairly obvious, I think, in this chapter is that creation is the work of God the artist. It's very interesting, isn't it, that there is an instantaneousness in God bringing things into being, and then there is a kind of process, like an artist working on a painting, like a sculptor working on some model that he is uh, fashioning. God brings reality into being, and then he, he works on that reality. He speaks. He speaks a whole series of words that are divided from one another, and it seems ever so gradually. This world becomes the world of beauty and grace and ardor that he intended it to be. Now, look at how it begins. It's actually very interesting how it begins. In the beginning, here's a kind of summary. In the beginning, God creates everything. Okay, got that? He's created everything. But don't immediately fast forward to the end of Genesis 1. Look at what is now said. The everything, within the everything God has created, the earth was formless, empty, and dark. That's what he made in the first instance. In the heavens and the earth, he made an earth that was formless, kind of shapeless, a kind of just a mass of stuff. And not only just a mass of stuff, but there was nothing in it. So he didn't create it with animals and rivers and mountains and lochs and human beings. When he created it in the beginning, it was just stuff. And it had no, no recognizable shape. And it was empty. And it was dark. And then he began to do something. And you notice it's wonderful what he begins to do. He begins to speak. And you notice what happens when he begins to speak? The first thing he says is, that darkness, it will need to go. And so he banishes the darkness with light. And he says, that formlessness, I'll need to create form." And you'll notice how we are told he begins to create form. And the earth begins to take shape. And then he says, it's fine for it to have shape. Now we need creatures who will enjoy it. And he speaks again. 
And so the darkness is dispelled by the light. The shapelessness is given form. And the emptiness begins to be filled. And he does this, we're told, over a period of six days. It's interesting, isn't it, that the first day actually doesn't seem to be the day of creation. There's a day, there's a, there's a time, we could say, although we're not quite sure what we're speaking about here. But before the first day, there is this creation of the shapeless, formless, emptiness, this darkness. And then, like a sculptor, I say, God comes. And uh, over the period of a week, he speaks light and shape and fullness into this shapeless, empty darkness. You, you get the picture? Whatever the implications of this may be, I think the best way to read the first chapter of Genesis, when sometimes we get caught up in the length of the days, is to understand that since man wasn't created until the sixth day, this is not describing my days. This is describing a week in the life of the Creator. That's what it's doing. You see, sometimes what happens, yes, there are many questions. This series will raise more questions than it answers. Of course it will. But sometimes we get all caught up in asking questions that the text doesn't easily answer. And therefore, it shouldn't surprise us that earnest Christians will disagree about the answers if the text isn't meant to give us the answers. And what are we doing? We're looking at man all the time. And we're fighting with other men all the time. But Genesis chapter 1 is encouraging us to say, this isn't about man. Men and women don't appear in this week until the 6th day. This is about God's week, because this chapter is actually about God and not about man. It's about God's greatness and not my greatness. It's about God's glory and not about my glory. And so, you see, there's a sense in which when we read through Genesis 1, and especially when we hear God's feet or God's voice reverberating through these days, if the net result of it is that we want to pick arguments and not that we want to bow down lost in wonder, love, and praise, whatever we may achieve, we have actually, we've lost sight of what this chapter is about. I think I'll explain this in another way. I wonder if you notice that this is not only the work of God, the artist, but this is, this is, we might be bold enough to say, the work of God, the Trinity. Now, I'm not sure Moses could have seen that. Sometimes the Old Testament has been described as a, as a room that's got a lot of furniture in it, but it's very dimly lit. And it's only when the light of Christ is switched on that we can see things that were always there, but the people who lived in the room couldn't see it so clearly. 
Do you notice what's happening here? It's absolutely fascinating. What is happening here is that God is at work, creating all things. But when he creates the earth, it's formless, it's empty, it's dark. Ah, but do you hear a sound? The Spirit of God was, and the author uses kind of bird-like language, the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And then, in conjunction with what God is doing, God the Father, what the Spirit is doing, hovering over the waters, there is a word that comes forth from heaven, and everything begins to fit into place. The world as we know it in its beauty and glory begins to emerge. It's absolutely amazing. Right in the first three verses of the Bible, we're given the sense that, that God is not some kind of monolithic block who is all dressed up with power but nowhere to go with that power, all dressed up with love but, but no one to love. But He's there with His Spirit and with the Word. And together they bring into being everything but there is. And what's so interesting about that is that first of all, we've got the Father who is designing and creating, and then we've got the Son who is the Word of God. Do you remember John calls him the Word of God who is speaking? And then nearest of all to the creation, we have the Spirit who is going to be the executive who will, as it were, down here, bring everything into the form and fullness that God has designed. Isn't it interesting that's how the Trinity, God the Trinity, always seems to work anywhere you go in the Scriptures? The Father plans. The Son is the one as the Word of God who brings new life, and the Spirit is the one, as it were, who makes all of that real in the world in which we live or in the hearts that we have. Actually, there's almost a picture here of salvation, isn't there? It's, it's, almost, it's almost deliberate. I mean, this, this chaotic mass, and God is saying, I I need to rescue that. I can't let that be. And so it shouldn't surprise us that there's another book in the Bible that begins, and there is only one other book in the Bible that begins this way, with exactly the same three words in the English language as Genesis chapter 1 begins. The gospel according to John that uses those same three words, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Through Him all things came into being. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us so that all those who trust in Him would be born again, have another genesis out of their spiritual darkness and formlessness and death 
into the new life of God and fellowship with him through Jesus Christ. It's such a marvelous picture of the greatness of our God. Creation is the work of the artist. Creation is the work of the Trinity. And creation is the work of the Savior. Do you know when Genesis was written? It wasn't written during the sixth day. It was written in the light of Exodus chapter 1, wasn't it? That's kind of divinely accidental. We read Exodus chapter 1, but so significant because it was in the light of the salvation God wrought for his people through Moses at the Exodus that Moses sat down and wrote the book of Genesis. And it's so fascinating to to think of Moses writing about the God who has made all things, realizing I'm actually writing about the God who has come to save us. And actually in between the lines here, there are, there are little indications that Moses is saying to his people who have been baptized into the religion of Egypt, it, it isn't that way. Creation didn't come into being because of a fight among the gods. Men and women are not made to be slaves of the gods. Creation came into being with the speech of God's voice. And man and woman have been made as the image of God to be his royal children to serve him. But the the big point is this, and actually not all Christians get this. Your Savior, if you're a Christian, is the Creator. Your Savior is the Creator. And that means when you become a Christian, when you become a Christian, instead of your life being restricted, I must only think about how to be saved. Your life is put into a new order of reality altogether. And now this strange world becomes the most wonderful place and in a strange way for you the safest place in all the world to engage in any piece of work, any kind of discipline because you know that it's your Savior who made everything that there is and it's part of his gift to you. And he says to you, now, go and explore it. That's why it's not just people like me who preach who are really serving God because we are talking about the Bible and salvation. This is why whatever you do as a Christian believer in any part of God's creation, you're set free to serve him in the calling he has given you because you understand it's my Savior who made all this. And it's my Savior who says to me, now, come and explore it with me. That must be a marvelous thing if you're a scientist, which I certainly am not, to be able to sense that you've nothing to fear here. To be able to sense 
What an adventure God has put me on. Or if you work in medicine and you examine the human body, to be able to say, this is the reason I treat this body with such respect is because here is somebody who has been created by the very God who is willing to save them. So that no matter what you do, you are actually able to do all things to the glory of God in Jesus Christ. And uh, that's just the introduction. For some of you, that's the whole series. But for some of us, that's just the introduction. Any of you know that hymn of Anna Laetitia Waring? All hymn writers should have names like that. Anna Laetitia Waring, loved with everlasting love, led by grace, that love to know. She is a line in that hymn that meant worlds to me when I became a young Christian. Something lives in every hue, color, shade. Something lives in every hue that Christless eyes have never seen. Why is that? Why do we live in the same world as non-Christians but see it quite differently? Because the lenses in our spectacles have been ground to a divine prescription. And we're able to say, Christ is my Savior, the Spirit is my Helper, and the Creator is my Heavenly Father. And this indeed is my Father's world. And He's given it and all things in it so that I can richly enjoy it and enjoying it, enjoy Him. What a Savior He is. He's always bigger than we thought He was when we first came to Him. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You that You have given us Your Word and its truth and its power. Thank You for the release it gives to us, that we know this is Your world and You will watch over us in it. And it's Your world, and so we can explore it. And thank You that You have taught us that we know something about absolutely everything. We know we don't know much. And even in the things that people think we know a lot, we we hardly know anything about anything. But we know this about everything, that you have made it for your glory and for our blessing. And we pray in that knowledge that we may be able to live for your praise and witness to your kindness. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.